0: I was faced with this slightly peculiar thing of being completely burnt out and having to actually tell myself the world wants the headset you've got to keep your head down for another year
1: we had a saying you know if your guts aren't boiling you're not even trying
2: sometimes you think you're crazy (laughs) and you just have to sort of keep pushing through
3: Welcome to Zero to IPO, a show about growing a company from just a glimmer in your eye into a massively successful public company. I'm Joshua Davis, co-founder of Epic Magazine and a Wired contributing editor. And I'm Frederick Karras, co-founder of Okta. And today on the show, we're going to be looking at the stage in a company's growth that we're calling... The oh shit moment. I thought we were calling it the kind of shit moment. Well, there's all sorts of, the thing (laughs) is, that's what this show's about. (laughs) There's all different kinds of oh shit moments. There's the little ones, the big ones, the ones that will end your company. Uh, And we have a very interesting collection of guests who have all been through this moment where you are like, what the fuck am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? Today, we're going to be hearing from Alex Issaile of Jawbone. Amy Pressman of Medallia and Ben Horowitz of Andreessen Horwitz. And they're gonna be talking to us about what happened in that moment, through that moment. They're gonna set the context and they're gonna tell you how they came out of it and what happened afterwards. Our first guest today is Amy Pressman, who is the co-founder of Medallia, which is now a billion dollar software company that specializes in making customer feedback easy. But in the early days of the company, Amy and her co-founder were faced with a national tragedy and had to actually decide whether or not to fold the company. There was something I had read that you had said that I think is maybe a good jumping off point, which is that you're not interested when people just say yes. You're interested when people say no to you. Right. Talk about that and can describe what that is.
2: You know, it's the feeling where you have a vision, you have an idea, and you pitch it to someone and they tell you it can't be done. No way. It's never been done before. And instead of feeling dejected and deflated, you're like, okay, how are we going to change this person's mind? How are we going to address that issue? And you just get more energized and more um, into like doing it. And you want to turn that no into a yes.
3: And you don't end up just thinking you're crazy because everybody says you're off your rocker?
2: Sometimes you think you're crazy. (laughs) You know, you have moments of doubt, but I think, I think, no, when you have a vision, you have an idea of what you, what you you want the company to be or the product to be. You just have to sort of keep pushing through. Um, I mean, I by no means fit the, um, the sort of standard ideal of a entrepreneur in silicon valley when i started i was in my 30s i was a mother with two uh, with two kids i had one well i you know i was in the early stages of the um of the company we bootstrapped for 10 years i mean there're so many ways you built which, it with your
3: husband you started with your husband i started
2: with my husband <laughs> there's so well, that, that's more common than you think oh, actually. Okay. that's actually quite common um but but the point is we weren't f- going down the checklist of, you know, get a series A, get a whatever, you know, like we we sort of, but we were really passionate about the idea. And so we didn't, you know, we didn't sort of back down. Let me give you like the most stark um, example of that. I I remember it incredibly well. Um, We, our original idea for our our, our technology, we were pitching to hospitality um, and we went and we pitched a free pilot to a large hotel company on September 10th.
3: AKA Hilton.
2: Yeah. That's right. You even doing your reading. And uh, and we came back and woke up and the next morning was nine eleven. And obviously that was an incredibly devastating moment for the world. And in a very, you know, micro way for us. We knew that there would be no funding for startups. You know, the bubble had been softening. Now it was completely deflated. We knew that we were targeting hospitality. That didn't seem like a great target industry as your first industry post nine eleven. That and, that
3: industry just went south.
2: People people either stop traveling altogether or they dramatically reduce their travel. So I remember walking with my co-founder around the block and we had opportunities to go back to like previous employers and whatnot. But I remember walking around the block and say, I don't know how we're gonna do this. I don't know how we're gonna do this. Should we should we give up? Should we bail? And we said, no we like th- we know this is the right thing. We had no idea how we were going to do it, um, but we we like it, it was almost like this moment where we doubled down. That's when I knew we were truly entrepreneurial because it looked so bleak, and yet you had so much passion for the vision that you weren't going to give up. And we were we were quite lucky um, uh, as it turned out. Hilton called us the next day or a couple days later and said they want to do the free pilot. And uh, one of the ironic things is that. And this is kind of awful to say, but nine eleven turned out to be beneficial to us because it's so. Um, it was such a um, disruption for the hotel industry that they were looking at all kinds of ways to cut budgets, and it turned out we represented a cheaper, better way of doing what they had historically done. So it ended up, I think, accelerating our um, our, our traction in that industry. But we had no way of knowing it at that moment. But it, but it was a n- massive no, and we just kept thinking, how are we going to turn this into a yes?
3: by cheaper you mean free
2: <laughs> well we didn't stay with the free model
3: <laughs> but that was that was a, that was a key selling point yeah, at the beginning was, was like hey I've got an offer you can't refuse
2: that is true and you know and but we did we did structure into the original deal that if we hit certain milestones they would convert into a, a paying customer
3: uh, so in that story you're describing this Was this September 12th? Was this the next day that you're walking around? Or we
2: were walking around September 11th. Okay. I, I don't know if you York. remember. No, 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 no. We were in Palo Alto. Yeah. But I, I mean, I remember we... Kind of went to the office. We didn't know what to do. We, I mean, you know, I mean, everybody was quite dazed and trying to process that day. But I do remember just walking around the neighborhoods outside of University Ave in Palo Alto. You know, sort of the existential question: Are we gonna? Are we gonna continue this thing? And and we did. And I mean, it's scary. Like it's both of us. We have no income. We have two kids. We're living in Palo Alto. I mean, that is that was not a, a super easy decision to make. In hindsight, it looks like it was the right decision but it was a pretty scary one
3: was there any difference of opinion do you guys kind of have a yin and yang where you'll say I think we should stick it out and your husband will be like no I don't think so were you just immediately both like we're doing this
2: I think we were both all in yeah Um, we definitely have differences of opinion but that was not one of them Yeah, yeah we were all in
3: What would you have done, Freddie, in this situation? Ah, per- I would, Personally, I think I would have been like, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't go into the hotel business. What do you mean, maybe? For sure, I would have folded my tent and gone home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would have gotten out the Xbox. Yeah. By the time you got around that block, <laughs> well, I would have only gone halfway around the block. <laughs> you wouldn't. I wouldn't even gone around the block. I would have just gone home. <laughs> I would have let you keep walking. I would have stopped and turned around and said, I forgot something. Yeah, I went the other <laughs> way. <laughs> got in my car, <laughs> got home, busted out the Xbox. I think, though, that this says something important about the mentality, perhaps, uh, of an entrepreneurship. You have to be so committed and in love with your idea that even in the darkest of dark days, you still see the light. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to be obsessed. You have to wake up in the middle of the night thinking this is a good idea. And then when people show up and say this is a horrible idea, you have to say, yeah, this is an even better idea than I thought. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, that's definitely the case. So what Amy's saying is when faced with the oh shit moment, don't fold, double down. Did you at Okta have any similar oh shit moments, Freddie? Yeah, I mean, there were definitely some early, I think 2011, uh, we had some where we just couldn't get any big customers to sign up. We just had a couple small customers and we were missing our projections by a mile. And, um, you know, our our graphs and our projections said that we were going to be doubling revenue. And in fact, revenue was flat and we were losing customers. And what was it like going into the board and saying, I know you thought we were going to be doubling our revenue, but in fact, we're going the opposite direction. Yeah, no, it was great. I uh, got thrown out of two board meetings in a row (laughs) for for, uh, being controversial in my commentary on this fact. And the investors were like, you're just missing the number. Were and, they, were, you, I said, trying, de- the were like, you trying no, to- You're missing the point. no, we're not missing the point. You're missing the number. Were you trying to defend the situation and they just wanted you to own up to it and be like, hey, yes, we haven't delivered. Like, what was the controversy? The controversy was that we needed to make serious change in the way that we were going about our go-to-market approach. And you didn't want to do that? Well, I was. it wasn't clear to me that that was the right decision. I thought that we could continue on where we were and the ter- tables were going to turn. And You weren't seeing the lessons of the oh shit moment. I was not seeing the lessons yet. Uh, and so I was excused to go think about those lessons. You and were told I, to leave the room. I was told to leave, leave the Leave the board meeting. Multiple times. So after the second time you came back into the room, had you seen the light? Uh you mean the second board meeting where I was kicked out? These are two different board meetings. Oh, I see. Two different board meetings. Two, two, su- <laughs> two successive board meetings. Uh, I realized I might get fired from my own company. And uh, that was not a very happy place. And what was the change? The Two changes. Uh, early 2012, first of all, we brought in our first professional chief revenue officer. Uh, prior to that, it had just been me. And I had some experience, but I didn't have experience building out the teams that we needed to build out next. And then secondly, we brought in our first outside head of engineering. So Todd was also doubling as head of engineering. So we both had all of these jobs. And they said, look, you know, if you guys want to grow up and to be a a more serious, established, real company, you need to go and find a very serious head of sales and head of engineering. We did that, brought in uh, two great people in early 2012. And that really started to turn the course of the company around. Was that one of the things that you were, maybe emotionally resistant to, you're like, look, this is my company. I can do this. I can run everything that I said I'm going to run. And Todd maybe felt the same way about engineering and you guys needed to kind of open your minds a little bit. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, I think it's very hard to let go of some of those things. It's your baby. I mean, we had 20 people and then we had 40 people and certainly I've learned those lessons over the years. Um, But yeah, without a doubt. but Very hard emotionally. Oh yeah. Super hard. Yeah. So hard that they told you to Get the fuck out of the boardroom and think about it a little bit. That's exactly right. Now, if you ask, uh, if you ask the board members at the time, they have a different recollection of the moment. They seem to recall it being more of a dialogue. I thought it, I thought it was pretty direct. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty, pretty much a one way communication. Dialogue meaning you yeah, go I mean, out and talk to yourself. Dem talking at me <laughs> and yeah. telling me to go out and talk to myself. <laughs> so it was actually two dialogues. <laughs> Our next story comes from Ben Horowitz. Ben is the co-founder of the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. You heard from his partner Mark Andreessen on our first episode. But before he was running one of the most successful venture capital firms of all time, he was going through one of the roughest IPOs of all time. Here's Ben describing his own ultimate oh shit moment and how he and his team got through it. You and Mark started LoudCloud in September '99, September 9th. Yeah, 99. Was that 99. deliberate or was it just a coincidence? Nine, 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 nine. That was not a coincidence.
1: Uh, no, actually, you know, we noticed it after the fact and it was easy to remember the day we started it. Um, but uh, it wasn't a conscious. So it was, it was a coincidence. A coincidence. Yeah, it it was, a coincidence. was a coincidence. It was a
3: coincidence. Yeah, uh, turned out to be bad luck. It's <laughs> kind of whatever, 666, six, 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 upside down, kind of. <laughs> Did you start to think about that as things went... Uh, bumpy?
1: No, you know, I'm not really a numerologist. Right. So,
3: Well, so let's get into the bumpiness. Starting out, it, things were going pretty great. You were raising a lot of money. Yeah. A yeah. lot of money. How did that feel when you were getting, you know, I think you got 100 and, if I'm not mistaken, $120 million in your Series yeah.
1: B? Yeah. Well, that was actually, I think
3: it was, yeah, it was Series B. It was... uh
1: Nine months after we founded the company. You got to remember uh, that was June of 2000, which uh, was two months after the dot-com crash. And the dot-com crash was particularly scary for us because we had so many dot-com uh, customers. So there, it was like a bit of a foreboding, <laughs> I would say. So it wasn't all slap-happy, exciting.
3: Walk us through you know, some of the memorable moments of the next 12 months. If you yeah. remember, if you remember any of it,
1: no. So it, it was it was pretty scary. So you know we were burning a lot of cash, um, but we were bringing in a lot of money, and we had this very aggressive forecast because you know you tend to forecast off your history. That's just how you do it, it's particularly and when the history is short. It's not necessarily predictive, but it's all you have. Um, so we had this forecast that was way too high, um, and so as a result of having a forecast that was too high, we ended up burning more cash and so forth. And we were still growing uh, pretty quickly. But it was, uh, you know, things were getting scary. And then we needed money, like, not that long after, like, we had just raised $120 million, which is, like, you look at that and you go, that's the dumbest thing ever. But, you know, we were in this kind of weird race. We got into the new year and... We knew we were going to have to raise money and we went to look to raise money privately. And by that time, which was kind of the beginning of 2001, the private markets were basically closed. I mean, like, I I haven't seen anything like that since, but uh, nobody was investing in anything. Um, Like, people were shutting down their funds right and left, like, everything. It was just like Armageddon everywhere. And, uh, so we, it became clear that we could not raise money at any valuation privately. Uh, so we were like, well, can we go public? (laughs) You know, which is kind of,
3: what do you, what you, what do you remember about that? Like, what were you feeling at that time when, you know, none of the private investors were investing, was your nervousness ratcheting up every day as you saw the bank account go down?
1: Yeah, I mean, like uh, we had a saying, you know, if your guts aren't boiling, you're not even trying, because um, that's how it felt like every day. Like, you couldn't sleep, it's like sweating. I was like, what am I gonna do with all these employees? Like, we're gonna run out of money. You know, so it kept going like that, and so we're like, well, you know, maybe we can go public, and it it was tricky because we were forecasting. 2001 to be, you know, 75 million in revenue, which would have been like, that's pretty acceptable for a public company in those days. Uh,
3: That was the, that was the aggressive forecast.
1: Yeah, that was, was, that's, you know, it was pretty aggressive, but it was, it was pretty realistic at the time because, you know, most of our customers hadn't gone bankrupt by then. Uh, And, you know, but 2000 was 2 million in revenue. So we're going 2 million to 75, which is a very steep revenue ramp. <laughs> like very to simple. say the least, um, but we had most of it was booked, like so you know yeah. we had booked it um from companies that were on the v- about
3: to go bankrupt, but well, you about, didn't know that
1: yeah, about half of them, you know not not all of them, thankfully, uh, so you know we said, well, you know, maybe we can take it public, and um
3: where did that idea come from? Was that you, was that mark? did you somebody else recommended it?
1: No, it was like the only option. the question was where could we raise money? loans, I guess. Yeah, and uh, I think that would have been hard to take on that much debt. And we already had a fair amount of debt because Morgan Stanley had lent us forty-five million dollars uh, in the Series A. So there was that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, so you would really stack things up for yourself. And you were you were uh, how many how much runway did you have? Like how long before you ran out of cash?
1: Fast-forwarding a little, we would have uh, we were going to be completely out of cash probably April
3: first. So from the moment you started realizing you needed to do that next raise, whether public or private, how much time do you think you had?
1: Well, you know, like I think we knew in November is when we knew that private wasn't gonna work.
3: So maybe five or six months of cash.
1: Yeah, about that. Yeah, maybe five months, five months. Um, and so, you know, we're like, okay, well, we probably need to go public. Uh, And, you know, I went through the whole thing because I'm like, okay, can we really go public and so forth? And I made this list of all the reasons why we couldn't, you know, like we had no predictability. We couldn't forecast our sales. um, We couldn't forecast what we had booked already because a lot of the companies were going bankrupt. Um, We didn't really, you know, we were probably, uh, you know, needed to change out a bunch of executives. And, you know, I had just a very long list of reasons why we couldn't go public. And so we, we were sitting in the board meeting and um, I, I read my list. I go, here are all the reasons why we shouldn't go public. And uh, my friend, Bill Campbell, who is on the board, says, Ben, it's not about the money. And I said, oh, okay. And he says, it's about the fucking money. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I guess we're going public. And, and that was basically a decision to go out. And so then away we went. Um, so
3: you, you had this very long list of all the reasons why not to go public. Yeah. And then on the other column, the reason to go public, there's basically one item. Uh-huh. It we was, needed the money. You need the money. Yeah, we needed the money. So you like drafted the S1 registration, I mean, in a couple of months. Well, you we a, had
1: already, we, so we had you, already, uh, you'd already prepared,
3: prepared some of those things. Because
1: when things were going good, like we were growing so fast that it made sense to go like we actually, so that was one of the things that saved us Yeah, is we were prepared. Um, <laughs> we were prepared to go public cause things were so good. Right. Uh, but when things went bad, right. like then we had to, we actually had to play that card, which.
3: So how many months would you say were the good months you had? <laughs> like, Five months. Yeah, it was it was five, four or five months. Four or five uh, months of good times.
1: Yeah, and seven and a half years of just sheer terror. <laughs> but uh, you know, it was what it was. You know, like once you're in it, like you can't get out. As Freddie will tell you, you get in. You know, that's uh, <laughs> that car. You can't get out of that car. <laughs> you can only get into that car. Um, and so that that's where we were. And so you know we. Decided to go public.
3: And so you have this long list of reasons why you shouldn't IPO, the one reason why you have to, the money. You decide you have to do it.
1: We're ready to get on the road. Um, And they have these things called comparables, which are, and we had them with Octo, which is all the companies like your company that you ought to trade like. So during the time we were on the road, from the time we priced to the time we traded, the comfort fell 50%.
3: That's a two-week period. Three weeks. Three weeks. It took longer to do our IPO. Three weeks.
1: Yeah, three weeks.
3: So over three weeks, the companies you were comparing yourself to dropped in value by By 50%. Yeah, by half. So
1: that that was... Not a good sign. That was a lot of downward pressure. Uh, You know, and we, you know, we're on the road. Uh, Everybody we see is like, kind of, why are you here? They're, they're literally saying this, like, why are you here? Don't you see what's going on out there? Like, the NASDAQ fell every single day we were on the road. So it was down every single day, all red days. Um, and, you know, we're just kind of going to meeting after meeting after meeting. Um, and, you know, it's super, super stressful. Um, but, you know, we're going, giving the presentation, you know, we just got to find a few guys to invest. We'll be all right. And, I think it was a weekend, you know, Mark had had this idea to have this business week reporter follow us around. His name was Ben Elgin. And um, the idea was like, we'd give him full access. And then after the, you know, this was long before things went bad, but after the IPO, he'd tell the story. And he releases the story while we're on the road, which is, like semi-illegal, right? It's a gun-jumping thing that we gave this guy access, so he kind of lied to us, put the story out, and it was called the IPO from Hell. <laughs> and while you're on the road, while we're on the road, and it ended with like, you know, this is a story of like hubris and greed or whatever the, you know, whatever it was that he called us, but he, you know, just kind of called us a bunch of names at the end. Um, so like that was a very, so that happened.
3: How was What was your reaction when you first read it and you saw it?
1: Well, we're like, we're dead. Like, the SEC is going to stop the thing and then we're going to run out of cash. Because when we started on the road, we only had three weeks of cash left. So, or I think midway through, we had three, three weeks of cash.
3: So every day counts now.
1: Yeah. So, like, we were, that was my big fear, that we're just going to get turned off entirely. Um, but the SEC let it go for whatever reason. We told him like, hey, you know, we didn't say anything. Well, we were he, We had this agreement. We actually had a legal agreement. The guy, like, broke it, you know. he's."
3: If was, this SEC had stopped it, what would have happened? Well, we would have gone bankrupt, 100%. Like,
1: there's no question. That would have been in the company. Um, which kind of brings me to the next bad thing that happened, which is, uh, so... So my wife and I are, like, super close. We got married when we were very young. We were, like, 22 years old. Um, you know, we had three kids by the time we were 25. Um, like, even today, like, if I, like, go somewhere on business, like, she'll come with me, that kind of thing. Like, we're super, super close. Um, and my father in law uh, you know, he passed away. But he and I were very close. And, uh, you know, he had had, like, a super hard life. And never, like, he was a guy who never complained and never, like, would call. He never called me, like, period. I'd see him when I saw him, but he'd never call me. And so, like, he calls me while I'm on the road. And I'm like, okay. this is Just when I heard his voice, I was, like, very worried. Uh, and he goes, Felicia's collapsed. And I was like, that's my wife's name, Felicia. She's, she stopped breathing. She collapsed. But I think she's going to be okay. And I'm sitting there going, I need to go home now. But I knew if I went home, that's it. We're bankrupt, like it's over. And I, I was just like paralyzed. I had no idea what to do. And I was like, and I, de- I remember asking him, I said, well, what, um, what does Felicia want me to do? And he says, she says, stay out on the road. Um, and I knew it was like the wrong thing. Like th- there was nothing right about that thing. Uh, but for whatever reason you know I stayed out on the road but like after that it was a complete blur i couldn't even i can't even tell you what happened who i met with what was going on there was one meeting where i had packed two suits that looked similar but they were different colors <laughs> and i was wearing the jacket of one and the pants of the other like it was like that bad but uh
3: and know, was she was, uh, where were you i mean Kansas City i mean Chicago, you could be anywhere i mean
1: yeah, no, I believe we were in Milwaukee. No, we went everywhere. Yeah. We went to Italy. We went like, it's crazy. <laughs> no, it's crazy. It was a long roadshow. Uh, and, you know, and so, so we just kind of stumbled through it like that. It was just one of those things. It was like super, super traumatic. So then um, the... Uh, we priced it at $6, so like we, we set the price at $6, which was we had gone out of 10, so. And does that Another mean? Another disappointment that for the employees. They were, they were also not happy with that. Uh, but we, you know, somehow got it sold $162 million worth of stock.
3: Uh, what do you attribute that to?
1: Well, you know, I think it was just, you know, we saw so many people in so many countries. You know, we were, Germany, and Italy, like just, Everywhere, which you know, nobody does that now. Like nobody goes sees the international investors on their roadshow. Uh, and you know, with investors, you don't need them all. <laughs> you just need enough uh, to get the money. And uh, you know, we got the money. The Morgan Stanley banker on the deal was Michael Grimes, who's like <clears throat> a great banker um, and has been in the business since nineteen like. 93 or something so he's been doing and he's still doing that now like he's still he did like I think he worked on the Facebook IPO and then like but but he's still like taking companies public and he and I went to see the Raiders play uh, in Mexico City a couple of years ago because he's a Raiders fan I remember that so we went together and uh, I said to him I was like Michael like in all the years of doing IPOs um like, what is the worst, like most difficult IPO you ever did? Uh, and he said, not including the ones that failed, only the ones that actually got done. He, I said, yeah. He said, no question, loud cloud. Like, 100%, that's the worst fucking thing I ever experienced in my life. And I was like, oh, it wasn't just me.
3: <laughs> so, so, but you know, that
1: was, that was the story of the IPOs.
3: I mean, this story just blows my mind. This is a mind-blowing story. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. Mind-blowing story. His wife gets sick. Oh, his wife collapsed. His wife collapses. she's in the hospital? First of all, the Business Week reporter's on the road with them. He's going to write the fluff piece. Embargoed. And it comes out right in the middle, the IPO from hell. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's a lot of wisdom to be gained from listening to Ben because he's been through so much darkness. So many oh-shit moments. I mean... Any one of those three-week period. In, in a three-week period. Any one of those could have been career-defining, dark, like, low points, and he packed it all into a month. Yeah. I really like the singular focus that he shows and that he talks about is necessary to get through the oh-shit moment. I think the example where Ben talks about going to the meeting with one suit pants and the other suit jacket and not even realizing that he was wearing completely discoordinated outfit is pretty symbolic and epitomizes the level of focus you have to have in these oh shit moments to get through them and it's something certainly i think a lot of entrepreneurs can identify with when all the other circumstantial stuff it just the noise goes away you get locked in you're you're zoned in if you were on the road show leading up to an ipo and your wife collapses, do you continue the roadshow or do you go home to your wife in the hospital? I mean, I'd probably go home to my wife in the hospital. Uh, yeah, uh, I, mean, I mean, you know, I think that that is one of the valuable parts of having a co-founder in the business. You know, you have someone else who can shoulder some of the burden. I think to that situation that Ben was in, he didn't have anyone else with him. He's the CEO, the CFO is there, but that's it. What would you do? I'd go home. I feel like this is one of the things that people uh, don't realize or appreciate when you hear the story of massively successful people. Ben Horowitz made a choice that probably 99.9999% of people would not make. You have to be a special breed of person. It's mainly not wine and roses. (laughs) It's mainly (laughs) chewing glass. And enjoying the taste of your own blood. Yeah. I don't know, Freddie, if our next guest, Alex Asaley, likes the taste of his own blood, but he has definitely chewed on some glass. Alex is the co-founder of Jawbone, the headset company, and we last heard from him in our episode about the first big win. But Alex has gone through his fair share of oh shit moments too, the kind that feel insurmountable, including the eventual liquidation of his company in 2017.
0: And in 2004, we, we launched a headset under the name Jawbone, which was the first time the Jawbone brand uh, sort of came to life. And it was... It was plugged into a USB slot on a computer, wasn't it? That was actually the second edition. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That was the second edition of, of, of a commercially failed product, but a product that nonetheless proved some aspect of the vision of you know, clear voice communications. Um, and so there was a slightly peculiar... There was a slightly peculiar moment where we're like, "Da da, here's our technology," but it was in a, the vehicle. It was in was a headset that no one really wanted, um, in the sense it was still wired. It was still you right. Still it, have wasn't to use wired. Yeah. it wasn't wireless. Yeah, wasn't wireless. Yeah.
3: Do you remember having a kind of executive meeting where, like, hey, we need to reorient? Or we need to go back to our roots?
0: No, I don't think so. I think it was just a given. I mean, I think, you know, Hussein, my co-founder, and I were, um, I think, sufficiently aware of of, of, of the missing, of sort of the missing... The mission. Missing mission, you know, uh, and that we had essentially just kept our heads down for survival. Um, But ultimately, we needed to turn back to the thing that was motivating us to do this in the first place. And then this slightly... Slightly peculiar thing happened where we wrestled the company back. So we wrestled control back from from the partners we'd brought in uh, who had taught us a thing or two about operating a business, about building a brand, but who ultimately proved themselves not to be great partners for the vision. And we wrestled it back. We were exhausted. And then there was only like four of us left. And uh, I was faced with this, slightly peculiar thing of being completely burnt out. Freddie remembers this. Being completely burnt out and having to actually tell myself the world wants the headset. You've got to keep your head down for another year. And having to literally like pep talk myself on almost a nightly basis to be like you... you, I think it was actually a couple times a day. It was a couple of times a day. Because it's the right.
3: reality of what you were dealing with Well, was, because the history already. Yeah. I mean, you'd been doing this for six, seven years now. Yeah. yeah. You'd already gone through the highs, the lows. You'd launched a commercially unviable first edition product, then second edition product. And then we're like, okay, we got to do it one more time. That's right. And that became the first super successful Jawbone headset.
0: We then also... Hesitated to raise more money at that time because we we were already like two million, two and a half million deep, and we didn't want to take the the, the, the personal reputational risk of taking on more money when because we, you might lose it. Because we might lose it, but also like we, this was two thousand and five. This is not like two thousand and twelve, let alone two thousand and eighteen, where like people are actively encouraging you to raise more and fail if you have to. You know, what I mean. In those days, it was still a little bit like people like, haven't you kind of given this enough time? Like, shouldn't you move to something else? I had right. friends of mine saying, come and join this other business.
3: Because you've been at this essentially for eight years at this point. And, you know, it's like, it doesn't look like it's growing.
0: Yeah. Right? And there's also like 101 reasons. To walk away. To walk away. And also why there's, there's, there's sort of an exercise in Zen where, you look at the list of things that need to happen for you to, to actually get the next product out and each one of them not happening will will blow up the business but you somehow have to like get into a mental state where you just keep going and you have to just have faith that it's going to pan out and and this is something that we could have talked about it as the sort of the zen of the entrepreneurial journey of that kind of perseverance in spite of all odds. And what that
3: actually looks like in practice is you staring into a mirror talking to yourself.
0: Yeah, not quite as literal as that, although I'm sure that happened a couple of times, um, but, more, <laughs> but more like having sleepless nights yeah. where you are either getting calls from someone saying the test didn't happen or it didn't work or the engineer who's been with you for five, four or five years is like, I can't do this anymore. My wife wants me to get another job, right. or um, any which, any one of those things is like game over, right? Right,
3: everything's falling apart.
0: It's it's falling apart, and,
3: and in your head, you've got this. I mean, this is something I think uh, you see from successful people. This kind of self coaching, almost like giving yourself motivation.
0: You, I think you need it, and I, but there's also a lesson in that, which is it, it's also good to talk to other people um, or to at least have people to lean on. So
3: you knew Freddie, obviously, at that time. Uh, what advice? I, was, I think
0: was, I was sleeping on his couch. Yeah, what advice was Freddie
3: giving you? You did actually sleep on my couch a number of times. Well, I think what was interesting was, you know, from the outside looking in, I would come in and visit you in your apartment and you still had giant sticky, sticky notes on the wall with the drawings of the next generations of the head, headset. So it was like, well, this one's not working. And I'd be like, yeah, I was trying it on Skype last night and it kind of blew up. And you're like, <laughs> it yeah, it had three wires. Yeah, it had three wires. I didn't know what to do with the third one. And you're like, that one you're supposed to plug in. And then I'd walk in and then on, this, on the side of the, of the wall, of that apartment that you had, there was these giant sticky notes with diagrams of what the vision of the next set of headsets was going to look like, and why was this in the apartment w- and not the office? Because we we'd
0: just... been kicked out of the office when oh. the whole when the, when 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 the whole debacle happened with. So
3: the with office our was now your apartment.
0: So the office was now the apartment. There was a period where we, where the office had been chained shut, and so you couldn't my, get in. We couldn't get in, and and, and my apartment became the kind of. The 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 what's it called? The, ground Zero. The, the, the Ground Zero War Room. Right. Um, for both getting the well, company. Well, back. What
3: did it look like, Freddie? Um, how, how big of an apartment? Uh, how big of an apartment? I mean, it couldn't have been more than like a thousand square feet. Two bedrooms, was, maybe. It was a one bedroom. Was, what were your observations about Alex's state of mind at that point? I think the perseverance is the thing I would highlight. I mean, at that point, you really have to say, "I've gone through all of this. I think." it still needs to happen. As you said, the world still needs to get this. Were you telling him to get the fuck out? Uh, I I was probably, you know, suggesting that we think about
0: other things to do and, you know,
3: (laughs) but it's, but that's, but but it's hard, but you can't walk into an entrepreneur's life and be like, you need to do something else.
0: It's a tough one, but, but I do think, I think that just the interaction is helpful. I'll tell you why, because you're not going to get into the trenches deep enough to give qualified advice on how to do the business. But but just being there caring causes, induces, it induces um, a type of thinking in the on the part of the entrepreneur that either gets them to, you know, challenge their assumptions on the business or potentially gets them to challenge the entire idea itself, right? Um, am I doing the right thing? And And I would always come back to, I'm burnt out, but I have to get across the finish line. In my mind, it was that clear that we just had to launch this Bluetooth headset.
3: I like this thing, Freddie, that Alex says. He says, I was completely burnt out and I had to actually try to convince myself what the world really wants is a headset. (laughs) 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 You're like, you are spent it's uh, you're yeah, like, burned out the you got world nothing Needs left. this headset the world needs a headset i gotta peel myself off the ground because the world needs a headset oh man <laughs> yeah yeah he talks but he talks. he also talks about that mental state where you just keep going he talks about the zone yeah he, does. he talks about the focus about getting rid of all the other noise nothing else matters and they just kept hammering it out yep. year after year for like a decade s- uh, almost yeah 10 years yeah where, again, you don't actually see that many wins. For him, his oh shit moment was like an oh shit decade. (laughs) It was an oh shit number of years. (laughs) It was an oh shit number (laughs) of years. Another thing I think you see from Alex's experience is that these oh shit moments don't just happen in the early days of a company, Freddie. Sometimes they happen even after you've reached the pinnacle of startup success going public. I think that's right, Josh. But I think what's important to remember is that you go through a lot of these things and when you're in the moment, you got to focus. But when you come out, those are the things that make you stronger and allow you to build and allow you to really grow as an entrepreneur. I mean, Josh, you went through some tough times in Iraq. Maybe you can talk a little bit about those. I was there uh, from the start of the war in 03 uh, until Baghdad fell, and I was a very young reporter at the time, and I remember being completely overwhelmed and scared and uh, trying to navigate the war uh, on my own. I was not an embed. There were a, a number of journalists who had gone through the Pentagon program and were attached to military units. I was just hitchhiking. The main thing I take away from that now is when I go through a tough time, I think back on that. And I think, well, I survived and that was difficult. And it calms me down when I'm going through another crisis. I think it's important to have these moments of challenge uh, where you come through the other side and it builds you up for the next time. Special thanks today to our guests, Amy Pressman, Alex Asali, and Ben Horowitz for taking time out of their busy schedules to speak with us and to the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship for collaborating with Okta to bring this podcast to life. If you like what you've heard and you want to know more, check out exclusive in-depth stories from each episode on fastcompany.com and to hear the next step in taking a company from zero to IPO, Make sure to subscribe and give us a good rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Joshua Davis. And I'm Frederick Harris. And we hope you'll tune in for our next episode, Culture. Thanks for listening.
2: I really wanted just to work with grownups. I mean, that was the most important thing to me. It's like the, the number one thing I wanted that was different than I had experience was just not tolerating people when they don't act like adults.